We are at the fourth and final message that we uh, have been bringing to you for the past few weeks on defending the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. Of course, this text is taken from the book of Jude, chapter 14, verse 3. Jude, verse 3 says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it is needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now you might think, well, surely everybody does this. Everybody that, that calls the name of Christ and everybody that associates them with some uh, position of religion, they all earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. I assure you that this is not true. It's, it's difficult sometimes to tell third-party stories because it's not a story that happened to you. It's a story that happened to somebody else. And so you have to throw a whole lot of they, them, and those in the situation to get folk to follow you. Uh, but I, I almost have to tell a third-party story to, to kind of illustrate this point. So this was a story that was relayed to me by Elder Sonny Piles, the late Elder Sonny Piles, now gone on home to be with the Lord. Uh, he said he was walking across a college campus with a minister of another order. And during this conversation, this other minister said to him, we don't make children of God. God makes children of God. Now, we believe that. We would agree with that statement. This man of this other order said that. We don't make children of God. It's not the preaching of the gospel that makes children of God. God makes children of God. Brother Sonny Goat went on to relate that then... He heard that man that night for an hour and a half stand up and try and convince people to become children of God. We're not the only ones that believe in election, friends. We are not the only ones that believe in the sovereignty of God. We are not the only ones that believe that salvation is by grace and grace alone. But we may be the only ones that preach it. There are a lot of big-time preachers. There are a lot of popular preachers. There are a lot of preachers that possibly I could call their name. You would know them. They believe these things. But because it might cost them their congregation and their salary and their livelihood, they do not preach these things. Friends, not only is the ministry called upon to earnestly contend for the faith, the congregation is called upon to earnestly contend for the faith. Because the book of Jude is not written to preachers. The book of Jude is written to God's people in general. When he talks about the common salvation here, he's talking about the salvation we all have in common because of God's grace. This is the grace that God gives to us in regeneration because of Christ. This is the common salvation that you and I have in common, not only with each other, but with people around us who may not be primitive Baptists and may not agree exactly as we do, there is a common salvation that comes from God. There is a specific salvation that you and I have in knowing the truth. There is a specific salvation. Uh, there is a joy 
of salvation that we have in knowing the truth. And that's what we are, we are to contend for the faith and the truth once delivered to the saints to pass that knowledge on to other people. Atheists and agnostics and unbelievers reject the Bible as a whole. They reject it as mere fable and myth and legend. Uh, the Bible is considered by them to just be uh, stories that Jewish parents told or made up to teach their little Jewish children moral lessons. You know, stories along the lines of Aesop's fables or Grimm's fairy tales. According to atheists and agnostics and unbelievers, everything from the creation to the crucifixion to the second coming of Christ, to them is just fanciful imagination. It's designed to control and manipulate the populace into some kind of oppressive compliance. There is no doubt that men in the past have, well, both men in the past and in the present, have used the Bible in an improper way. And that it has resulted in much harm to many people. We acknowledge that, right? We acknowledge that, that both men in the past and men today have misused the Bible and it has caused great harm to a great number of people. Uh, <clears throat> however, wicked men do not need the Bible to abuse and oppress other men. They are perfectly capable of doing that all on their own. And, you know, for that, remember what the Bible wrote to us in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, notice verse 11. First John chapter 3 verse 11 says, For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Why did Cain kill his brother? Was it a misuse of biblical authority? It was not. Actually, it was exactly the opposite. It was in reaction to proper biblical teaching. There are some things in the Bible that are hard to understand. But there are some things in the Bible easy to understand... Hard to like. There are many places where the Bible says exactly what it means. And people object to it. Not because it's oppressive. Or because it's some phobic idea. People reject it. And object to it. Because they don't like what it says. 
if anything, the existence of the Bible down through the years when used properly has been a great hindrance to those who want to deceive and control those around them, those they deem less than them. Because I don't think it was those preaching the Bible here just a few years ago calling for everybody to shut down and stay home and things like that. It, in fact, it was exactly the opposite. In many cases, it was those of us with the Bible crying for freedom. Notice what the Apostle Paul, uh, Pete, what the Apostle Peter has to say about Paul in Second Peter, chapter three. In Second Peter, chapter three, verse. 15. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 15 says an account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation even as our beloved brother Paul also according to the wisdom given unto him hath written unto you. Now let's let's stop right there. Paul has written to you according to what? Wisdom given unto him. See that? So that, that's been that's kind of following along the lines of the pattern that, that we started. Search the scriptures to just simply know what's in them. Know the scriptures to learn what is in them. Learn the scriptures to understand what is there. But then when you understand what is there, now we have to apply what is there. The story that I told you to begin with, the preacher understood that we don't make children of God. But he did not apply that when he went into the pulpit. And that to me is kind of, that is kind of mysterious, really. And this is kind of a point that we'll get to a little bit later. That when it comes to the Bible, oftentimes people just throw their brains right out the window. And they do not apply to the Bible just simple, basic things that they will apply to the earth itself. But that's, I'm, I'm kind of ahead of myself. But Paul has written what? He has written to you based on the understanding given to him. Okay, let's continue on. Verse 16, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. Notice the word rest in the middle of that verse. How's it spelled? W-R-E-S-T. You get that? Why are you spelling? Well, you know, one, one, one pronunciation of the gospel is go spell. You say, what's the purpose of that? Well, the purpose of language is to communicate, right? They rest. W-R-E-S-T. The scriptures. That's the shortened form of the word wrestle. There, in other words, there are people who take the scriptures and twist them and wrestle with them. And in so doing, they have abused those 
around them. And they rest and they twist and they misapply the scriptures because it says that they are unlearned and they are unstable. The Bible also says in the book of Psalms, chapter 56 and verse 5, Psalm 56 verse 5 says, Every day they rest, W-R-E-S-T, my words, all their thoughts are against me for evil. It is a common belief in society around us that one of the reasons that the Bible is to be rejected is that the Apostle Paul was a misogynistic, hateful individual who did not like women. If you were to walk down the streets of America today and ask a vast number of people, what do you think of the Bible? Or what do you think of women's position in the Bible? The majority of them will tell you that the Bible is an oppressive book that hates women. They tell you this because they are ignorant and unlearned. They tell you this because they are ignorant and unlearned, and they have not bothered to read the book for themselves. They have only picked up what somebody else has said, and it seemed like a reasonable excuse for them to reject the Bible, so they picked it up and they took it with them. Seems kind of odd to me that the Apostle Paul, who if he was a person who hated women, should write such things as Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Seems to me if, if he was a hateful individual... He probably should have said, husbands, who cares about your wives? Do your own thing. If you just take time to read the book, you may find out that it doesn't say what you think it says. Now, you may find out that you don't like what it says. But I guarantee you, you'll probably find out it doesn't say some things you think it says. And it says some things that you didn't know were in there. And I assure you that we live in a society that tries its dead level best to rest, W-R-E-S-T, wrestle and twist the scriptures every single day. People have used the scriptures to abuse people and abuse their position. But that is not the position of the Bible. In John chapter 5, well, we'll turn to John chapter 8 and notice this verse. In John chapter 8, verse 31. John chapter 8, verse 31, And then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. 
And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. In understanding the Scriptures, the Scriptures are those things which make you free, the Bible says. But you notice, a lot of folks quote this, that the Scriptures will set you free. It doesn't say set. It says make. Now, is there a big difference in those two? Maybe, maybe not. However, if, if I'm sitting in prison for something I did not do, I am not a free man. I am an innocent man, but I am not a free man. I am sitting in prison. However, if I am sitting in prison for something I did not do, I know I didn't do it. And I am free on the inside. Whether I am physically free on the outside or not. The scriptures have a way of making you free. Even if the situation you are in is not free to you. So Daniel, who was sitting in the den of lions, was not free. Physically. But spiritually and on the inside, he was as free as he could be. When Jesus said in John chapter 5 verse 39, Search the scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life. This, this is a command. This is a challenge. And indeed to the Jews, they thought they had eternal life in those scriptures. If they just followed along, did everything that the scripture said, followed along step by step by step, they'd get eternal life. And yet Jesus says, that's not the point of the scriptures. The point of the scripture is to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. There are no doubt a lot of good practical lessons in the scriptures. There are a lot of moral lessons in the scriptures that even the wicked of this world could read this Bible and do what it says practically and they'd have a good life on this earth. Y'all, some of y'all look kind of fuzzy at me. Well, the book of Proverbs talks about pursuing wisdom and avoiding folly. The book of Proverbs will tell you a little bit about how to manage your money. You know, Dave Ramsey has made millions of dollars. Dave Ramsey has made millions of dollars by telling people this one thing. Don't spend more than you make. That's it. I have summed up his entire life. And somehow this thought just sort of evades multitudes of people. Don't spend more than you make. And if you don't think you're making enough, attempt to get a new job. It's really not any more harder than that, is it? But, but as someone once said, wisdom has pursued thee, that in all thy, but in all thy diligence thou hast outran it. I know a lot of people that wisdom has pursued them, but they have diligently outran it. The faith that was once delivered unto the saints is not to be defined by our feelings. 
It's not to be defended by our traditions. I, I sat down last night to begin to watch the movie Fiddler on the Roof. Y'all ever watch that? Uh, a, a guy at work, he just, he's talked this up to me a lot the past week. And so I'm, I'm, when we go home this afternoon, I may sit down and watch it. But just the very beginning of the movie starts out with a fiddler on the roof. And he sits up on the roof and he fiddles. And a man down gives his little monologue uh, about why do we stand on the roof and fiddle? How do we keep our balance on the roof and fiddle and not fall off? I tell you, tradition. And to a lot of people, that's how they keep their balance in life. They just follow tradition. If I just follow tradition, nobody will have anything to say about what I'm doing because I'm doing what everybody else is doing. See, it's tradition. And if we're all doing it, we must all be right. Because surely this many people can't be wrong. Well, I assure you, friends, the faith that was once delivered to the saints was not left up to you and me to defend by our traditions. Now, I will, I will concede that the term tradition is used in the Bible. And I will concede that in the New Testament, the apostle said, do those things which you have received by tradition from us. I concede that. There are some good traditions that we have. There are some good traditions that we have. But traditions are not our God. God is our God. The whole of the Bible and the whole of biblical history and the whole of human history is one thing. His story. It is the story of Jesus Christ. If you want to defend the Bible and stand on truth, the only way to do that is to search the Scriptures, find Christ, and apply that to today. Y'all remember when Brother David Piles was here just a few months ago? He got to talking about the subject of looking at the Bible a little bit from allegory. And he, made the, he made this statement concerning this, and I, I thought it was a, a pretty brilliant statement that we, we need to remember ourselves. And it may answer a couple of questions for us. Number one is, why is there so much misunderstanding around the Bible, especially amongst even the, even the church? Forget about the world around us. Even in... So-called Christianity, why is there so much misunderstanding about the Bible? And then Brother David asked the question, he says, why is the Bible written so much from the allegorical standpoint? And he made this statement. He said, to make sure that the careless readers would not get the point. And that the careful readers would see that God is the author of this book. 
And that this book is written by a superhuman power and by one of immeasurable brilliance. Why is there so much misunderstanding? Because we got a lot of careless readers attempting to tell you what the Bible means when they don't know one idea about what it actually says. And those that are careful readers realize this book's a lot bigger than we ever imagined. In Ezekiel 47, when he went out to measure the temple, Ezekiel says, I went out and there was a man that came out and he measured a thousand cubits. And this water that flowed out of the temple was up to my ankles. And then he measured another thousand cubits and the water that was there was up to my knees. And then we measured another thousand cubits and it was up to my loins. He measured 4,000 cubits and out here he said this was a river of water. I could not pass over waters to swim in. There comes a point in your understanding of God where you think this is just up to the ankles. This is not that deep. And I wish that I could kind of preach that way a little bit. Not to make it too deep for God's people. Because when you get too deep, sometimes you get too confusing. But the longer you live, and the more you learn about God, and the more you learn about His book, you understand that this is a book to swim in. That this is not something that just barely tickles the fancy, or the imagination. This is something that challenges the intellect if you really do look at it and you really do get into it. Notice in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 35. We left off uh, with this particular verse Last week, I I did not cover it because there was too much into it to discuss um, with our introductory remarks last week, even though our time went over by 15 minutes. The sermon still was only an hour. But we did have those introductory remarks that kind of pushed things. So at any rate, here in Exodus chapter 30, uh, chapter 35, there is something that's mentioned three times in the book of Exodus. Exodus 31, Exodus 35, and Exodus 36. In Exodus 35, verse 30, Moses said unto the children of Israel, See, the Lord hath called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he hath filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, and in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, and to devise curious works, to work in gold and in silver and in brass, and in the cutting of stones to set them, and in the carving of wood to make any manner of cunning work. Notice the detail that God went into. Not not Bezalel. God went into filling this man with wisdom and with understanding in doing things. Have you ever wondered why it seems like 
people were more ingenious maybe in the 40s and 50s than they are now? I think I know why. I think we were attempting to be a godly nation at one point. And God was honoring that effort by filling men with wisdom. God also went to great detail to fill these men with wisdom so that His temple or His tabernacle would be a precise tabernacle. Because it was something that pictured somebody else. Notice I didn't, notice I didn't say the tabernacle pictured something else. It pictured somebody else. I mean, if you ever notice, if you just go back and you read the, the description of the tabernacle... This thing is set in the desert, and you approach it from an east to west direction. Right? Outside the tabernacle, there are two items, the brazen altar and the brazen laver. You burn a sacrifice, and you get washed outside as you enter into this tabernacle, right? And then as soon as you go into the doors, on the north side of the tabernacle, there's the showbread, Parallel to it, directly across on the south side, is the candle, the menorah. Right? And then directly in front of them, in the middle of the tabernacle, so to speak, right in front of the Holy of Holies veil, there is that uh, altar of incense. And then in the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. What have I just described for you here? I have just described, if you will look down on this tabernacle from above, I have just described to you something that's there in the position of a cross. A bunch of items going right down the middle of it, and on either side of it, two items there. And oh, by the way, the encampment of Israel around this tabernacle is also in the same manner. There's approximately 186,000 Israelites on the east side of it. There's approximately 181,000 on the west side of it and somewhere around 157 or 151,000 on the north and south side of it. If you got any imagination, the part of the east is a lot longer than the north and the south and the west is a bit longer than the north and south. You have this image of a cross for 40 years. As Israel travels through the wilderness, God looks down on his tabernacle that is down there. And the thing that he sees for 40 years is a cross. Did I say that right? What are you getting the idea of here? The cross was not an accident. And when God is looking down on his people, he's not looking at baptism. He's not looking at their repentance. He's not looking at their good works. He is looking at the cross of Christ. And if you don't get that, you'll not understand why Christ came. Because also notice this. Not only did He fill this man with understanding and knowledge and wisdom and in building things, but I want you to notice the very next verse here. Uh, Exodus chapter 35, uh, verse 34, and he hath put in his heart that he may teach both he and Aholiab. 
Why is it that I can look back in the 1930s and 40s and watch instructional videos on how six-speed transmission works and I can clearly understand it? I can't even understand sometimes nowadays how people tell me how to sharpen a pencil. Not necessarily my dumb understanding. I am dumb. I don't, I, I, I'll give you that. But I guarantee you there's a lot of people in the world today who don't know how to teach. They might comprehend what they're doing. But to convey that message to somebody else is a completely different story. Every man in here ought to have the ability to stand up here and tell people what they believe. If for some reason I'm not here on some Sunday morning and y'all show up and you by yourself, y'all ought to be able to have some sort of church service. Somebody ought to be able to stand up and say something that's biblical and something that's true. But have you ever noticed that it's the pastor in the Bible that the Lord says, I've given to the church pastor teachers. That to ordain a man, he said, must be the husband of one wife, not a striker, not a brawler, apt to teach. We're not asking the deacons to teach. We're not asking lay members to teach. There ought to be a difference in what's conveyed from the pulpit. You ought to feel like when you left here, you were taught something. And if you weren't, I did a poor job. And I know that that has happened. But where does my ability to teach come from? Because I'm such a good and able and honest person? No. If I'm called of God, it comes from God. That's all there is to it. He's given understanding and wisdom, and He's given the ability to teach. See, this is a given understanding. It is a given ability to relate that understanding to other people. Uh, by the way, that this is what we're kind of talking about. There's a difference between a natural understanding and a spiritual understanding. The wicked of this world can read this book and say, yeah, I see what it says. You're right. It does say in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. But I don't care. See, there's a natural understanding and a spiritual understanding. They can look at it and see the Bible calls Jesus, uh, uh, calls Mary a virgin. Yeah, well, that's what it says. But I don't care. From the wicked of this world standpoint, you see what we're getting at here. They can read it and see 2 plus 2 equals 4. But without the Spirit of God in them, they really don't care. You know, even amongst us, the understanding of what this Bible means has to come from God so that we can properly apply it. John chapter 3. This conversation is had between uh, Nicodemus and the Lord Jesus. And Jesus asks, you know, Jesus lays out the doctrine of the new birth. And Nicodemus says, how can these things be? I, can a man enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? I just, I am, I'm perplexed by this. And Jesus Jesus says to him in, in John 3, verse 10, Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? 
Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know. And testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. For if I have told you of earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? He says that the things that you understand in nature should be a pattern to help you understand that which is spiritual. The wicked of this world, as we said earlier, consider this book to be nothing more but myth, legends, and fables. Well, what do you consider? Do you think this book is myth, legend, and fable? I don't. And, and guess what? The men who penned these words did not think that this book was fable either. Let's, let's address that topic real quick-like. There are five scriptures in the New Testament that deal with the term of fables and this book in truth. Uh, when Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, he says, I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies. Paul tells Timothy, don't give heed to fables. Again, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. He says, if thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained, but refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather Unto godliness. Done mention fables at least twice. And Paul said avoid fables. Did he not? Second Timothy chapter 4 verse 2. Second Timothy chapter 4 verse 2. And here's pretty, a pretty good one right here to hang your hat on. Paul says to him in verse 2. Preach the word. What is he supposed to preach? Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Uh, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Notice verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears and shall be turned, uh, and shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. The Bible's laying out a pretty good case here. That if it's nothing but fables, it's nothing but a lie. Because Paul is laying out here, he does it one more time to Titus and 2 Peter. Also, Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses even of His majesty. So if this book is nothing but fables, this has been a pretty good place for Paul and Peter to say, hey, these are all just Jewish fables. These are all just good stories to tell your little children. This has been a real good place to say that. But they didn't. As a matter of fact, they went exactly the opposite. They said, this book is not fable. This book is not myth. This book is not legend. So when Jesus tells Nicodemus, 
You ought to be able to observe what goes on in the world around you and draw uh, spiritual conclusions to these things. And what I tell you spiritually, you ought to understand because you've seen it naturally. That in other words, the calf that is born to the mother comes from the mother. It doesn't walk up to the mother and ask to be its calf. Now I do realize, I do realize that sometimes you have to adopt things. Maybe a calf's mother does die and that calf needs to be joined over here somehow. But you know, the Bible addresses the, adop- the issue of adoption. It addresses the issue of birth. It addresses the issue of adoption. It addresses the issue of, of new life. And in every single case, it is the Creator moving towards the creation, not the other way around. Because the question is, is do you believe that Genesis chapter 1 is true? That in the beginning, God accepted to Himself a creation. That's not what it says, is it? In the beginning, the Creator moved and created. But now, we, we do have a little bit of it. Hold on, we, kinda, we are kind of getting a little ahead of ourselves somewhat. We do have uh, somewhat of an issue here as to what to do with the allegorical and what to do with... Uh, the historical, what do we do with the different perspectives of Scripture? And what people don't realize is, is when you read the Bible, um, David says in the 119th Psalm, verse 96, he says, I have seen the end of all perfection, but thy commandment is exceeding broad. David says, when I read thy commandments, they are exceeding broad. So, in other words, the Scriptures are so broad that they can have a historical truth, and a doctrinal truth, an experimental truth, and a practical truth, and a devotional truth, all at the same time. Though you do not always have to find all of them there. So, uh, the historical truth is that these events really did happen. The spiritual truth is what they have to teach us today. What does that have to do with us? So people will oftentimes uh, reject the historical narrative that Israel crossed the Red Sea. You with me? They say, no, they didn't really cross the Red Sea. They really crossed north of it in this little sea of reeds, the little marshy ground up here. That's how they got across this. Now, those of you that have read the crossing of the Red Sea, notice not only did Israel cross the Red Sea, but Pharaoh's army pursued behind them. The Bible says this. And the Bible says that the waters covered Pharaoh's army and Pharaoh's army drowned in the sea. That's what it says, right? All right, let's move that north a little bit. Israel crossed the Sea of Reeds and Pharaoh's army pursued behind them and Pharaoh's army was drowned in the little marshy ankle-deep water. You telling me that God reached down there with His mighty hand and picked them up and held them by the ankles underwater till they all drowned? Is that what happened? What they are? They were all in a drunken stupor, tripped and fell. 
and didn't know how to get out of the water because a drunk will do that. A drunk will, a drunk will drown in a puddle of water when he falls into it because he ain't got enough sense to realize where he's at and what he's doing and get up and roll over. That's just the way they are. So they all had a drunken blast the night before and they got out there in the sea of reeds and they all fell and tripped. Horses too. And the wagons. See how ridiculous this is? They start rejecting it. But see, the Bible has got all this kind of sewed up that if you reject one thing that seems reasonable, the thing that follows that you also have to reject makes it absolutely uh, ridiculous. Bring it back down here. They crossed the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army followed. They were drowned in the waters. Makes perfect sense. 2 Samuel 12, though. There's an interesting little story here in 2 Samuel 12. We know that 2 Samuel 12 follows uh, David and Bathsheba's extramarital curricular activity. And so Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel 12 comes to David and he tells him a little story. All right, and ask yourself this question. How many times do you hear people say, throw, how many times do you hear people throw off on the parables in the New Testament? They're just parables. They're just stories. Okay, so what's your point? Well, I don't know that the man really had two sons. I don't know that the prodigal really left home. It's just really a story about the Jews and the Gentiles. Really? That's all you get out of it? It's just Jews and Gentiles? I submit to you that if Jesus has to teach a story, He has to teach a lesson, that rather than go off in the land of make-believe and once upon a time, if Jesus says there was a man that had two sons, guess what? There's probably a man that had two sons. Because I'm a man that's got four sons. You're a man. You've got two sons. This is very much something that could be a real story, right? All right. Nathan the prophet tells David a story. Is it just a parable? Well, he tells it a little bit in parable form. But it's a historical story. It's a historical story from the standpoint it was historically told. And it's a historical story not hysterical, but historical story that was told about a historical event. The question that we always have to ask ourselves is, is the application of the story is, what, who am I in this story? And you notice that when David heard this story about there was a rich man that had a whole bunch of sheep and his neighbor was a poor man that only had one little lamb and the rich man, instead of eating his own flock, he went to his neighbor's house and ate his neighbor's flock. And David was furious about this because David disconnected himself from the story. He said, this story didn't have anything to do with me. This is somebody else. And I cannot believe the sin that I see in somebody else. It makes me furious to see somebody else. And it's at the end of the story that Nathan looks at him and says, David, thou art the man. 
You're the rich man that had an abundance. And you took from your neighbor who had nothing. So it's a historical story with a spiritual, moral application all at the same time. You know, when you read, when you read 1 Samuel 17 and David goes to fight Goliath, it's a historical story, right? So oftentimes we have to ask ourselves, uh, we have to ask ourselves, what happens if you emphasize the history and forget the spiritual? Or what happens if you emphasize the spiritual and forget the historical? Well, here's an example in 1 Samuel 17. This is a historical story, right? David fights Goliath. Goliath says to them in 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning with verse 8, that he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are you come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine and you servants of Saul? Listen to what the historical story says. Choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then will we be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. That's the historical call, right? Israel, just get somebody to fight for you. Let him come down to me and we will fight here in this valley. Y'all can sit up there on top of the mountain in the comfort of your chairs and we'll fight down here in this valley and whichever one of us wins, our win will be laid across the rest of the army. And which one of us loses, that loss will be laid to the charge of the rest of his army. Seems pretty simple, right? Well, you know the story here. David slays Goliath, uh, cuts off Goliath's own head. He, he hits him with a rock, down he goes, makes sure he's deader than dead, cuts off his head with, uh, cuts off Goliath's head with his own sword, right? And at that point, David turns around to Israel and says, Do you accept my sacrifice? That's not what he said, is it? See, there was no question as to whether or not Israel accepted the uh, victory that David had gotten over Goliath. It was just imputed to them. Right? You say, well, what's the implication of this? Did not Jesus Himself say, I come down from heaven... Not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. And this is the Father's will that, of all, he has, that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up again at the last day. Did not Jesus Christ come down from heaven to fight for us? Did He defeat the devil for us? Then will we go to heaven and be with Him because of accepting Him? No! We'll go to heaven because of His victorious sacrifice applied to us. If, if you don't understand why He came, you're not going to know how to apply Scripture. Take, take Abraham, for example. Abraham goes up on the mountain in Genesis 22 to offer his son Isaac, right? Now, the Christian believes it's Isaac. But the Muslim believes it's Ishmael. 
And they're arguing about the historical relevance of this, whether it was Isaac or whether it was Ishmael. My question to you is, so what? Who cares? Huh? Uh, here's something important. You can, you can argue the historical impact of that till Christ comes back. But if you forget the spiritual application, you're not going to learn the lesson. Because Jesus said to them in John 8, 58, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. What do you mean my day? He rejoiced to see what happened that day on the mountain when his son Ishmael, uh, when his son Isaac, when his son Isaac, when his son Isaac was taken down off of that altar and that ram who's caught in the thicket by its horns was placed on the altar in Isaac's place. The historical story was it was Isaac. But the overall spiritual lesson was that it applied to Jesus Christ when He came down here and went to Calvary's cross in your place. So if you emphasize the historical, that it's just a historical lesson, you miss the spiritual altogether. Well, what happens if we emphasize the spiritual and we forget about the historical? Well, Genesis chapter 1, where we started, where we mentioned earlier. Genesis chapter 1 says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, right? That really happened? Or is that a spiritual accounting of the way that God could have kind of have done it? You say, what are you, what are you in the world are you talking about? Well, the, the, were those actual 24-hour days? Were those six literal 24-hour days that God created the heaven and the earth? I believe that they are. However, there's multitude of people who believe that they are not six actual 24-hour days, but they are six million year periods of time. Did y'all follow that? That first day wasn't an actual 24-hour day. It was just a million years of time for that to evolve. And then the second was another million years for that to evolve. My question is, even within that million year span of time, did you have day and night? Am I teaching this right? Are y'all following me on this? Or was that a million years of darkness, or say 500,000 years of darkness followed by 500,000 years of light that made one day? Did y'all catch that? Am I saying that right? I mean, when have you ever known anything that could flourish in 500,000 years of darkness? Even in that one million years, if it was a million years, you had to have a day and a night because the Bible says the evening and the morning were the first day. Secondly, the Lord told him in Exodus 20. He says, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. For in six days I labored and did all my work, and on the seventh I rested. So in the same manner that I labored and rested, you labor and you rest. Well, if those six days are a million years long, y'all are going to have to work six million years before y'all even get one day of rest. Y'all ready for that? I mean, don't, aren't you tired just thinking about that? No, it's, 
It's a real, it's historically, he created it in six days. What was the reference? Rest. But also stop and think about this. God created the heaven and the earth. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So, did that creation move towards God and ask to be created? It did not. God moved towards the creation and He created it. And yet multitudes will fill pulpits all across America and around this world today trying to tell some portion of the creation if you'll just move towards God, He'll create you into His family. It's not a proper application of your understanding of Genesis chapter 1. But I'm going I'm to leave you with, with one final illustration here. The atheists and the agnostics, they reject this Bible as a whole. From the creation to the crucifixion to the second coming, right? We've already said that. But there is one story that they reject more than anything. It's the story of Jonah. How can a whale swallow a man? Just not possible. Well, is the story of Jonah just a little fable that Jewish parents came up with to teach their little Jewish children that you ought to obey God or you may wind up just in a bad place? If the story of Jonah is a fable and just a made-up story, we as Christians have a problem. Y'all ready for this? Because what did Jesus say about the story of Jonah? Jesus said to that generation there in Matthew chapter 12, He said, No sign shall be given this generation. This evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And no sign shall be given it except the prophet, sign of the prophet Jonas. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. If that story of Jonah is a fable and a made-up story, so is the resurrection. Y'all ready to hang your hat on that one? The story of Jonah is a real story. There are spiritual implications to it. That yes, if you would listen to what God has to say, and you do follow what God has to say, you're probably not going to wind up like that. But even if you do wind up out there, God is still there. It is a real story. And the spiritual lesson is, that just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall Jesus Christ be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's a historical lesson. There's a spiritual application to it. And what does Jesus say about himself? He says, I will return again and receive you unto me, that where I am, there you may be also. He says, Paul said, if the first fruits or the first lump be holy, so shall everything else be holy. When Christ came out of that grave, body, soul, and spirit, and went home to God, 
It says he offered himself without spot to God. And God accepted it. Nowhere does the Bible say that Jesus offered himself to us. It says that he offered himself to God on our behalf. And God accepted it. And if God accepted the sacrifice of Christ and his resurrection, then you'll be accepted also. Not on your works, not on your effort, not on your faith. You'll be accepted in God's eyes and in God's presence because of the applied work of Jesus Christ. So it's important. It's important that we understand what the Bible has to say so that we can properly apply it to today's standards and to today's life. That you learn from what it says. And if somebody, if somebody comes here, if they never join the Primitive Baptist, that's fine. I'd like for them to. I'd like for everybody to come in here and join the Primitive Baptist Church. I would. But more important than that, when they come in here and they sit and they listen. I want them to be like Philip in John chapter 1. To go out of here and say, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write. We found Christ. When they leave here, it is our desire. Not that we magnify the primitive Baptist. But that we magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. Preaching without preaching the cross. Without preaching the work of Christ. Is worthless preaching. He's the key that unlocks the door to things past. He is the understanding of the hidden wisdom of the ancients. May God bless us and help us to apply what we understand properly. Thank you for your good attention.